Well, and Jim, it's great to see you back. I guess I've been out of the loop long enough to where you being back is not a big deal anymore, but it's a big deal to see you back. So great to, great to have you back. And it's great to be back as well. Um, feels like it's been six months uh, for me, and uh, probably you may, some of you never even noticed I was gone, and that's, that's just fine. Yeah, I feel the same about you. But no, it, it was a great, great tour. Um, at, you know, I still got to work for a living. That's one of the crazy things about, um, you know, not being retired yet, is I'm sort of expected to still earn a living and to sock stuff away for the day that retirement may come. So part of my work does require me to travel, and I always feel sort of bad about it because I love the class. I love our time together on Sundays. And believe it or not, I do try to schedule the travel around the class. Like last time I left right after the class, went right to the airport, and yesterday, in fact, last night, Kathy and I got back from our vacation. So I do everything I can to be here, but I can't always be here. And that's good. That's good for you, and that's good for me. It's good for me to not feel so important, and it's good for you also to get a little variety in your exposure to the Scriptures. But before we get into the Scriptures, I've got a couple pictures for you. The first one is of my daughter and me, Sarah, on the Ignatian Way. Sarah joined me for our tour to Greece and Rome in the footsteps of the Apostle Paul. So this is my 29-year-old daughter. Isn't she just lovely? <laughs> hey, go back. I want to see my lovely. So Sarah traveled with me as well as several others from our class. And look at the next photo here. And I think we got... Yep, there we are in Rome, and in front of the, uh, of course, the old Colosseum. All right, keep going, Dave. Keep going. <laughs> is it going to be this way between every picture? Because I may skip some if it is. Okay, so here's my sweetheart. We went up to Vermont this past week and caught the color just right. Can't see the color just right with the, all the lights on and everything, but believe me, it was beautiful. Look at the next one here. Yep, getting better, and one more. Beautiful. So, yep, that was a postcard. I actually took that yesterday morning. That was uh, outside of uh, Woodstock, Vermont. So, just beautiful. So, you got time. Get on an airplane this afternoon and go to Vermont. It's really beautiful exactly right now. Um, that's it, right? Until we get into the questions. All right. Well, last time around, we looked at some questions that you had submitted for us to examine together in the scriptures, and we only got about halfway through or so those questions, and I thought, well, let's do a part two. So today we've got part two of the questions plus a couple of additions that have come in since then. And these are just questions about the Christian life, about the Bible, things that you know, you don't really have a context a lot of times. We don't have a context to ask questions about the Scriptures, or we don't know who to ask, or it's, uh, you know, kind of embarrassed to ask, or, or whatever. So all these questions, we're going to keep them anonymous, unless there's a need to embarrass someone specifically. I don't think there, there is. But um, 
And as we did last time, if you've got a point of clarification or if I'm not clear on something or um, you need to say something that you're just bursting to say, uh, raise your hand and we'll get a microphone to you so that we can let everyone else hear. If you need some clarification or follow-up, if uh, what I say about the, the questions and the scriptures isn't clear. All right, so I think we start. We left off last time around, and some of these are very practical. Some of them are a little heady. This sort of skews on the heady side. But um, the question is, compare and contrast justification and sanctification. That's nice and easy, isn't it? Let's get started with that one. Yeah, let's look together at Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 for this one. I heard a story about Louis Spiri Schaefer, the founder of Dallas Theological Seminary, was walking down the street with a fellow believer in Christ who had the notion, believed the idea that you could reach Christian perfectionism. It was. It is the notion that you can reach a point in your Christian life where you don't sin any longer. Anybody there, by the way? I didn't think so. Well, anyway, this guy believed that he was, and so he's walking down the street with Louis Berry Schaefer, and the guy, the wind takes this guy's hat and blows blows away, and the guy cusses. And Schaefer turns to him and says, "I thought you didn't sin any longer." And he goes, "Oh, well, that that wasn't sin. That was a mistake." Oh, that's the secret. You just redefine sin. Well, we never get to the point where we are without sin. Even the great apostle Paul says, I have not arrived. He says, but I press on. Even though I I continue to fail, I press on. Uh, So to compare justification and sanctification, and we're going to go ahead and throw in glorification because that is part of the three-part harmony of our salvation. Romans chapter 6, look down at verse 22. Romans 6, 22. If you're familiar with the book of Romans, the first five chapters focus on justification. That is, how can we be declared righteous in the sight of God, even though we're sinners? And then chapters 6 through 8 uh, focus on the idea of, uh, of sanctification, uh, really, the six through the whole sixteen, you might say, goes through sanctification, and then glorification is included in Romans chapter eight, and then scatterings throughout. But Romans six, look down at verse twenty-two. Uh, let's see. Uh, let's look back at verse seventeen. Verse seventeen. Romans six seventeen. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed, and having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in terms, in human terms, because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. Implication further sanctification. So he's doing a a comparison. In other words, when he says that you were slaves of sin, but now you became obedient from the heart, this is salvation. This is the point where you have placed your faith in Christ. And then he he says, "Now now that you've done this, now you are like a slave to Christ. And it says in verse 19, it results... um, 
presenting yourselves as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness. So when you present yourself as a slave to whatever, it results in further slavery to whatever. Slavery is not backing up. It is moving forward. It's going deeper into it. But when we are slaves of righteousness, end of verse 19, it results in sanctification. The word sanctification is basically from a word that that we get our word holy from it. It's the idea of being set apart for something. To sanctify something is to set it apart, like um, when you set apart you know, particular clothes for a particular occasion. You don't wear those clothes on any other occasion, like a wedding dress. That's for one occasion, and you sanctify that dress for that occasion. The same is with our spiritual lives, resulting in sanctification. But this word here, especially in this context of further lawlessness as the contrast, sanctification is our setting ourselves apart for God for further sanctification. It's this process that as we submit ourselves to God, it results in being further and further and further submitted to God. It's the process of growth. So we jumped in in the middle of our salvation, but just to sort of back up and get the 30,000-foot view, salvation is, as I said, a three-part harmony. It is a three-part step process. There is justification, is at the beginning, sanctification, and glorification. And if you wanted to add a fourth on there for a bonus, you could add throw predestination at the very beginning, at the very uh, from eternity past. And we actually see these in part in, in a couple of chapters later. Look at Romans chapter eight. Romans chapter eight. And on your way there, let me give you a definition for justification. And this is Chuck's definition. I think it's a great definition, and I've heard him say it for years. But justification, what is justification? This is his definition. It is the sovereign act of God whereby he declares the believing sinner righteous while still in a sinful state. It is the sovereign act of God that he declares a believing sinner righteous while still in a sinning state. In other words, when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we are, at that point, we are justified. Justification doesn't mean that we are made without sin. It is that we are declared righteous. We are declared righteous. You're not righteous. (laughs) I'm not righteous. We still sin. The guy whose hat blew off on the street was not righteous. He's still a sinner. So we are declared righteous. It is when, when God looks at us, it is a legal thing. He looks at us and he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed or given to us as a gift by his grace through faith in Christ. Romans 8 verse 29 gives us this wonderful process. Of course, Paul's making uh, a grand point here about the security of our salvation, which he goes to illustrate in Romans 9 through 11 about the security of Israel. But Romans 8, starting in verse 29, he says, uh, verse 29, he says this, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these... Who's he talking about? Those whom he foreknew. 
So those whom he foreknew, verse 30, and these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. It's all past tense. Even glorified is past tense. And that's a future. That hasn't happened yet. And yet it is so certain that it's going to happen, Paul writes it in past tense. It's as good as done. It's like when, um, it's like when we ask a request of somebody and they say, sure, done. No, it's not done. I just requested it. But when you say that, you're, you're using Paul's mindset of uh, it's as good as done. And that's what it means to be glorified. So justification is that moment when we trust in Christ where we are declared righteous. Sanctification is the daily process of us submitting ourselves to God and growing more and more and more in service to him. It's that process of becoming holy, a process that will never end in this life. It's a never-ending process, and that can be very frustrating at times because it's like, what's the point of running this marathon if it's never going to end? It does end, but it doesn't end in sanctification. It ends in glorification. The end of our marathon is rapture or death, and we run until we break the tape at rapture or death. And at that point, there is glorification where we are made righteous. So to give simple definitions to each one, justification, we're declared righteous. Sanctification, we are becoming righteous. Glorification, we are made righteous. All right, clear as mud. Anybody? Yes, sir. Dan. Bring Dan a mic real quick. Thank you, sir. I knew a pastor once that felt you could potentially reach perfection. And how would you in sort of unpack the Matthew 5:48 was where it says, "Therefore you are to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect." What does that word "perfect" really mean? Yeah, it means perfect. Okay, <laughs> it, it means exactly that. I mean, in other contexts, it can mean mature. Paul uses that as many of us who are perfect have this mindset, but he means mature. But Jesus there in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, is giving the standard by which we, go to, we enter the kingdom that he was offering. He was offering the kingdom to Israel, and he basically says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. A little, a little earlier, prior to that, he says, yet your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees. So he's, he's giving the standard to open everyone's eyes, I don't qualify. So at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about entering the narrow gate, which is him. Basically saying, the, I'm the only way in. Kind of like keeping the whole law. Exactly. Exactly. Keeping the whole law. James makes the same thing. In fact, James and the Sermon on the Mount are often doing this because uh, James is saying you can't keep the whole law. So, excellent question. Anybody else? Uh, we are talking here of uh, predestination and also about free will of man. Uh, as uh, we study the Bible, as I study the Bible, upon, for example, uh, Adam and Eve, they have the free will uh, to disobey God. Uh, also Abel, because of jealousy and 
En Engel, ik ben op warning, ik hield zijn broer en zo veel andere karakters in de Bijbel. En ik ben Hebrew 6, 4 to 6. Hij zegt dat het is impossible. Ik ben, als je de love right. of Jesus Christ en dan je shame uh, Jesus Christ. En zo, hoe do we reconcile? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's a challenge. You presented several challenges there. And I, I think, weren't you here last time around we did the QA? It, I think you were. If not, it might be good to go back and listen to that because those exact questions we dealt with last time around with the Q&A. But the, the free will of man and the sovereignty of God is a head-scratching doctrine. Um, Dr. Hannah one time said, I love it, and I'm going to quote it till my dying day because it's so brilliantly helpful, that God has re- revealed himself truly, but he has not revealed himself fully. What we have in the scriptures is true. But it's not everything. And it doesn't give us the full understanding of how to reconcile. How can God choose me, and yet I am supposed to choose him? We can't understand that. We can't understand that any more than my dog can understand how hopping on the back of the the car uh, makes the the car go. He just knows it it goes, and he hops in the car. (laughs) And it's not to denigrate a dog, but a dog's got a dog's brain. We've got a human brain. We can't understand the mind of God. But when he reveals those things, he doesn't reveal how they all connect. Because like in, in the book of Job, he says, you don't even understand how to build a planet. How can you understand these other things that you're accusing me of? But what we can understand is what we're responsible for. And that's Romans 10. Romans 9 is the sovereignty of God. Romans 10 is the free will of people. We can't understand the sovereignty of God. That doesn't mean we throw it under the rug. It means we hold it up and we praise God for being so much more awesome than our mind can understand. But we can understand Romans 10. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's what we're responsible for. We're not responsible to understand it all. We're responsible to believe. And that's it. All right, let's press on. We've got more questions to look at here. We could be on that one all day long. Um, all right, here's another nice, easy one. The, the history, purpose, and importance of baptism. All right, this is asked probably from a very good Baptist because we all love Baptist, baptism. Grew up Baptist. I grew up Baptist as well. Jesus gave us two ordinances, one to be done once at the beginning of your Christian life, one to be done repeatedly throughout the Christian life. Baptism is, is what's done once at the initiation or the beginning of your Christian life. And it is an illustration, it is an outward illustration of your faith. And very, very much like a wedding ring. I could take my ring off, assuming I could get it off. I could take my ring off and still be married. But it is a sign. I don't have to have the ring on to be married. Any more than I have to be baptized, and baptized to be saved. But it is a sign to anybody that cares to look that I'm married. It's the same way with, with uh, baptism. Now... Uh, the history of it. Baptism wasn't a new thing when Jesus came along and said, baptize the nations. The, the, the idea of immersion was, it's all through the Old Testament. If you go to Israel today at the southern steps of the Temple Mount, you can go there and see 
multiple ritual baths, mikvah, mikvot, that are there that you would dip in before you would ascend onto the Temple Mount. You read the Old Testament, you can see you're washing like every 10 minutes. It's, it's, a, it's a regular thing. Uh, and so ritual baths or being immersed is a very common thing. When John the Baptist came along, he assigned a new meaning to a particular type of it. It was a repentance, it was a baptism for repentance. This was John's baptism. But when Jesus came along, he says, now I want you to baptize the nations in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now this is yet another type of baptism. So there's multiple baptisms, types of baptisms throughout the Bible. But the baptism that we're most familiar with is not the only one, but it is the one that is so essential. The other ordinance, of course, is the Lord's Supper, which we do repeatedly throughout our lives. Um, there is a case definitely for rebaptism. If you have never been baptized before as a believer, you should be baptized. If you're baptized as an infant, for example, you weren't a believer, and you should be rebaptized as a believer because this is what Scripture commands that those who have believed should be baptized. Really, infant baptism is just more of infant dedication. It's really more of a, of a dedication of the parents saying, I am you know, going to present this child in the church, and we pray that one day they will indeed, their, their faith will indeed be confirmed through, then they go through classes and uh, can take their first communion, etc. cetera. Uh, it's a different faith, or a different culture, I should say, than ours, a different r routine, but uh, we're all in the same, same boat, as it were. Um, several modes of baptism. When you look at the scriptures, you can see immersion is uh, clearly the one that is taught there, illustrated, but we're never told uh, how to do baptism. And uh, it's interesting, even in seminary, they never taught us how to do baptism. We just sort of had to figure it out. You mean I just put them under the water, and that's it? Great. And you go to, but you go to a different seminary, and you'll get sprinkled. You go to yet another seminary, and you will get uh, poured on. So there are different modes of baptism, and I don't know that it is as important that the mode now, you may disagree uh, that the mode is, which mode you do, is that the reason, the motive for why you're doing it, that, that you're a believer, right, that you're a believer. Um, interesting also, the Apostle Paul made that statement, Christ did not send me to baptize. You remember Paul said that? It's in 1 Corinthians. That's in the context where he says, I can't remember who I baptized. And he says, but it doesn't matter because Christ didn't send me to baptize but to preach the gospel. Well, Paul, actually Christ did send you to baptize. Remember the Great Commission? That gives us insight into what Paul understood the Great Commission meant. The Great Commission didn't meant put people underwater. The Great Commission meant get people to the point where they would be baptized. In other words, share the gospel with them. It's a, a metaphor for evangelism and salvation. All right, any questions or follow-ups on that? on baptism. Good. All right, moving on. How about this one? Do prayers change God's mind or plan? Do prayers change God's mind or plan? Let's look at Genesis 18 as a good place to discuss that. Genesis chapter 18. 
Do prayers change God's mind? And I can sort of assume the motive behind this question because I think mostly, uh, in fact, some people, I even have a really good friend who says, you know, I'm not sure that prayer makes a difference. Um, And, of course, this is from the lips of a dear friend who uh, prayed for a long, long time, and uh, his daughter was never healed. So I can understand the motive of questioning, why do I keep praying when it seems to make no difference at all? Do prayers change God's mind, or did they just change us? Maybe another way to ask it. Genesis 18, look down at verse 17. This is the context where God is about to judge Sodom and Gomorrah, and God comes to Abraham, and notice, God brings up the subject. Verse 17, the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And then he mentions what he's about to do. He's about to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. And then look at what the Lord, Abraham says to the Lord in verse 23. Abraham came near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of the earth deal justly? So the Lord said, If I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare the whole place on their account. Now we know the rest of this. Abraham basically talks him down <laughs> to just a few people. says, well, I know, maybe 50, that's a lot. How about 45? Now, how about 40? I mean, 30. It's, like, it's almost like he's, he's doing a, a, what is that? Auction. Yeah, it's almost like an auction with God. But remember who brought it up. God brought it up. God made Abraham aware of the need. Why? So that Abraham would pray. Why? So that God could be merciful. And here again, the sovereignty of God and the free will of man are working and, and God responding to our prayers. But God brought it up. God moved Abraham. God showed Abraham the need so that Abraham would pray, so that God could be merciful or would be merciful. He wants us to pray. He wants us to pray so that he can work through our prayers. He motivates us to pray so that he can work through our prayers. God doesn't need us to pray. God can do what he wants, and often does. But he wants us to be involved. He wants to include us in the process. And this is why he tells us, pray without ceasing. To pray without ceasing doesn't mean that you are just one long prayer service. Because, you know, then when would you take out the trash? You've got, there's got to be a time and a season for everything under the sun. Now, to pray without ceasing, the, the word there, without ceasing, has, is the idea of this intermittent cough, this niggling cough that just won't go away. It's just part of your day, all throughout the day. You don't just have the time that you pray and then forget God the rest of the day. He's part of your day all the time. You pray without ceasing. It's this constant conversation between you and the Lord. Prayers do change us because they require a ton of waiting. That's the hardest part of prayer. It is the hardest part of prayer. 
You know, if the Lord just immediately answered our prayers, even if they were no's, we would just sort of treat him as this genie. We rub the bottle, and we just sort of start manipulating him. But when we've got to wait, and we've got to wait, think of the Apostle Paul where he says, you know, the thorn in his flesh, three times he prayed, God, take it away. And finally, Jesus told him no. At least he got an answer. Remember Christ in Gethsemane, prayed three times. And he says, but not my will, but yours be done. So prayers indeed can move God to be merciful, but the scripture seems to indicate that even our motivation, our our uh, being moved to pray for that particular item originated in the mercy of God. So God moves us to pray, we pray, God acts. It's uh, an amazing privilege and uh, far from easy to understand. Okay, any uh, follow-up on that question? Good. All right, here's uh, one that's relatively objective. Yes. Oh, yes, sir. Couldn't you also take a look at Moses uh, when God said he was going to destroy the Israelites and make a great nation of him, and Moses bows down and begs God not to do that, and God relents, changes his mind. Exactly. It's exactly the same principle in a different location, a different uh, situation. Thank you, Don. Okay, next question. Who are the good kings of Judah? Whew, that's a nice objective one. And, I, and then again, it isn't, because there's some that are sort of fuzzy. Forty kings, remember uh, uh, Chuck told us in the, in the service, the first service, the northern kingdom, not one of the kings. Those are all rascals. Northern kingdom not, had not one good king. Twenty nor- in the north, twenty in the south. Uh, none in the north were good. And in the south, like eight were good. And who were they? Well, we know for sure Abijah, Jehoshaphat, Jotham, Hezekiah, Josiah. That's five. We might add Asa, Joash, and Uzziah, but they were, you know, depends on which side of grace you want to land on. But uh, five for sure, eight maybe, if, and uh, we can even throw in Manasseh as a bonus if you want to count the end of his life. But he had such a bad beginning that uh, we usually lump him with the bad kings. So, all right, that was easy. Next, who are the prophets in the Old Testament? Who are the prophets in the Old Testament? That's a great question, and sort of uh, apropos, again, with our pastor's series on the minor prophets, but the minor writing prophets, because there are other prophets in the Old Testament other than the uh, major and the minors. Uh, we also have Elijah and Elisha, who didn't ever write anything down. We've got Huldah, a woman. So there's uh, quite a few prophets in the Old Testament. Jesus even referred, if you want to get even broader, he says the law and the prophets and the Psalms. And that's uh, basically talking about the whole Bible. And when he does that, he's including the historical books as being prophets. David is called a prophet in the New Testament. We know that Joseph was a prophet in the book of Genesis. So there's a lot of prophets in the Old Testament. Um, but if you want to just do the writing prophets, you can look at your table of contents. If you want the prophets who are beyond that, then uh, that is a that is a, a much harder, much harder answer to give. Okay, let's press on. How are we doing? Eh, not great. So let's uh, talk about. Or here's the question: Tell about the trip that captives from Judah took to Babylon. 
Please include any maps that are available. Okay, cue the maps that are available. <laughs> There's tons of maps. So, I even brought a little uh, lightsaber with me to help show you this because it's, it's harder to describe it. So, I mean, Israel is down here, and I'll try to show both sides of the room here. But Israel's here, and you would not go straight across the desert. This is far too far to travel. And so you would go up the Fertile Crescent, and it's called, called the Fertile Crescent because it is shaped like a crescent, and it is fertile. And this is where the International hi Highway was. So you would go from here all the way up to Haran, area of Haran, and then down into the area of Babylon. This journey was a long journey, <laughs> about 1,000 miles. You can walk 20 miles a day. That's about 50 days. Look at the next uh, map, if you would. Is she like this at home, Don? Okay, here's, here's this side of the room. All right. Israel started here. Go over here down to Babylon. Okay, got it? <laughs> That's helpful, isn't it? Actually, look at the next map. It's a little less dent, dense with. Uh, it's a little less dense with information. Yeah, here you can at least see the route. So again, you're starting down here in Jerusalem, going up the Fertile Crescent to the area of Haran and Aleppo, in modern Syria, and then down. Who what is what is this thing on the? It's a cursor, going down into the area of Babylon. So, thank you, Dave. Oh, the Zoomers, the Zoomers. Thank you, thank you for thinking of the Zoomers. All right. So, uh, about two, three months of walking. Two, three months of walking. So, long, long trip. All right. So, another question takes us to another photo. Take us to the next photo, I think. Uh, Dave? The, yeah, the, the, yeah. So, I was asked this question. This is, this is a great question. This is a seal, S-E-A-L, that was found, and I'll tell you what, Shirley, I'm going to start on this side just for you. This is a seal that was found back in 95, I think, 19, no, 2015. And this is the seal of Hezekiah. It was found at the southern steps of the Temple Mount. If you're uh, familiar with that area, it's just right, just above where the highway, uh, the road goes right there, and where the road bends. There, is, there was an ancient trash dump, and this was so small that it wasn't discovered until they did what's called wet sifting. They go through the, go through the rubble and run water over everything, and it gets rid of all the, the, the dirt and the good stuff's left. And they found this in that. This is the seal of Hezekiah. In fact, this says, basically up here at the top, it's a little easier to read on this side, but this is uh, to or basically of Hezekiah, king of Judah. I... I'm not translating that. I am remembering that that's what it says. And then you've got, here's the question that our uh, class member asked. Why in the world do you have these symbols here, especially this little onyx-looking thing, because that is clearly Egyptian? And then, if you know your stuff, this is also Egyptian-ish. Why does Hezekiah have Egyptian-ish looking stuff on his seal? 
And there's no doubt this is Hezekiah's seal. Why in the world does he have Egyptian stuff on there that doesn't seem to be, uh, you know, something that Hezekiah would do? Because Hezekiah is a godly king. He's definitely a godly king. Great question. Um, this is called a bula. Remember Martin Luther's papal bull? Uh, that has nothing to do with the animal that runs around with a ring in his nose. A bull, a bulla, papal bull, is, um, was the seal, the clay seal or the, the, the metal seal that was put on the scroll that was given to Martin Luther. And this is called a bulla, Hezekiah's bulla. It's a round seal pressed with a signet ring into clay, and it hardened to create this. This was basically his coat of arms, as it were. And what we're seeing here in the center, you can clearly see, is a, uh, it's not a bug, it is the sun with two wings, which sounds even weirder for Hezekiah to have. And on the either side, you've got those symbols, these uh, uh, Egyptian symbols that symbolize life. The thing is, um, what's Hezekiah doing with this? Well, we've got to back up and, in some sense, give Hezekiah the same sort of leeway that we give ourselves. We are people of our times. We are people of our culture, and we can adopt the things of our culture without it compromising our faith in Christ or our faith in God from Hezekiah's perspective. Egyptian iconography, which is what these images are called, icons, basically Egyptian icons, were very prevalent during this time. You remember the context of Hezekiah's time is Assyria was the big dog in the world. They were beginning to invade all over the world. In fact, they had taken the northern kingdom out, and they were beginning to work their way down in the southern kingdom. Hezekiah did have or was tempted at times to have an alliance with Egypt. And if we were to read the book of Isaiah and even the, the, the books of uh, first and for the Kings and Chronicles, we would see Hezekiah's really struggle with not aligning with Egypt against Assyria. And um, the, the, the more I read about this, I mean, some people say, well, he put this on there to sort of say, my political leanings are with Egypt as opposed to being with Assyria. Maybe. Or he could have simply been using, reusing Egypt's symbols for his own purposes. Personally, I think that's what he's doing that the symbol that, that represents life would have you know, a Yahweh spin on it. And the sun that has wings, the Egyptian wings go up. And so for him to be doing them down, he's basically saying, eh, this isn't exactly Egyptian. I'm making it my own. And, um, but what it, what it means, <laughs> I don't know. And I'm not sure anybody knows. I've read some, quite a few scholars that have written about this. They disagree. They argue. Uh, but here's what we know for sure, and we get it from the scriptures. Hezekiah walked with God. Hezekiah would not put, you know, a Nazi swastika on his seal. So whatever he put on there is not something that's going to contradict or uh, discredit his true faith, especially when he was trying to urge his people to trust in God. Think of it this way, if you're still struggling with it. Think of it this way. Here in about, I don't know, December 1st is usually when it kicks in at our church. 
Our church transforms its sanctuary into what? Christmas. Christmas. We've got in the lobby, on the stage, we've got these large conifer trees. Do you know the origin of the Christmas tree? It ain't great. (laughs) But we don't mean that. That has zero meaning for us. We have taken what was originally a pagan implement and we have repurposed it for our purposes. It means nothing to us as far as its pagan origins. We can use it with a clear conscience. So could Hezekiah. He was taking the Egyptian iconography of his day and repurposing it for his purposes. So, um, interesting also, the Wesleys, uh, Charles Wesley, would take hymns. He would write hymns. He was just a lyric writer, but he would take melodies that were from uh, secular works, orchestral works, folk tunes, even operatic works. Some say he took barroom tunes, but I think that's a urban legend. But he would take secular tunes and write Christian words for them. He's repurposing what the culture was using for his own purposes and for God's glory. Let's assume the best of Hezekiah with his seal that he was doing the same thing. If you want to read further on this, and you probably don't, but if you want to read further on this, Biblical Archaeology Review, July-August of 2001, has their lead article on this, King Hezekiah's seal. So I encourage you to check that out. All right, let's see. We've got some time to do, I think we've got one more question, which is perfect for the timing. And this is a common question. It is a essential question, and I'm so glad that you asked it. It's actually sort of a two-part question. Do those who have never heard the name of Jesus still go to hell after dying? Do those who have never heard the name of Jesus still go to hell after dying? Implication, again, the heathen in Africa. What opportunity does the heathen in Africa have to hear about Jesus Christ? If they're living in this little no-name tribe and they never get a missionary, is it fair for God to send them to hell when they've never even heard of Jesus, never even had the opportunity to hear about Jesus Christ? That doesn't seem right. second part of the question is, or is it like babies who die before coming of age to make that decision? In other words, is ignorance bliss? So let's take these two questions together and turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Please, Romans chapter 1. On this first issue regarding the heathen in Africa, thankfully the Bible is crystal clear. On the second one regarding infants, it gives impressions and some scripture that we could apply principles toward, but it isn't as clear. And they are two different issues. So no, it is not like babies who die before they come come of age. In fact, if we want to deal with that one first, maybe that would be a little easier to talk about. Um, I'll tell you what, let's, let's leave it for a second because it, it flows better from the first one rather than vice versa. So Romans chapter 1 Look at verse 16, Romans 1, 16. Paul writes, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, 
to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. The gospel. In context, the gospel in in Paul's theology is faith in Jesus Christ who died on the cross for your sins. It's not a righteousness of our own. It's not a righteousness that we have in and of ourselves. Paul's very clear about that in Galatians as well as Ephesians and here in Romans as well. That the gospel is the only means. It is the power of God for salvation. So the question then is, what about the person who's never heard the gospel? That's why we're here. Look at verse 18. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Notice this perspective because it is very critical for the answer. The Bible doesn't say why unbelievers are not saved. The Bible is focusing here on why everyone is worthy of condemnation. Everyone is worthy of condemnation. The question isn't why aren't they saved, but why are they lost? Notice God's wrath isn't revealed against those who haven't heard. God's wrath is revealed against sin. You could say it this way. People don't die because they don't have a doctor. They die because they're sick. God's not going to send people to hell because they've never heard of Christ. He will send them to hell because they're sinners. And that may seem a little hard. It's like, well, okay, so they know they're sinners, but what chance do they have to, um, to believe? I read a, a group of students at SMU filed a suit against the university seeking damages because a computer course they took was too hard and they all failed. <laughs> all 12 students failed the course. And a spokesman for SMU said that they offered these angry students a chance to retake the test at no charge, but they turned it down. And then the spokesman made the statement. He says, that's how it is these days. You fail the class, you sue the school. And when I saw that, I thought, you know what? That is often how we are with God. We sin, and then we blame God for condemning us. We feel it's our right to pass in, in spite of our failing performance. God is not obligated to forgive anyone's sin. He is obligated to judge it. If God saved one person out of the billions born, it would still be a testimony of his amazing grace. But he has provided a way for anyone to come to salvation. Well, what about the person that's never heard the gospel? I know, I know, we're getting there. (laughs) Notice the text says mankind has suppressed the truth. It's not that they didn't know. It's that what they knew, they rejected. Notice the very next verse, 19. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, or if you look at your margin, perhaps a better translation is among them, I think. Either one works with the context. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. 
For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Invisible attributes, Paul says, through what has been made. This is a slamming indictment to evolutionists. Paul's point is that they are without excuse when they see the creation and they fail to respond to God. That amount of revelation is enough to condemn them, but it's not enough to save them. So how do we, how do we reconcile this? Again, I, I've got a story for you. A um, friend of mine I met in seminary was a medical doctor and uh, came to the Lord and then decided that he wanted to go to seminary and go back to Ukraine and start a, uh, a seminary there. And one of his studies, as he was studying the medical field when he was as, as a student, he was studying, and the more and more he studied the human body, he, and this is in Ukraine, like pre, well, it was still communist, atheist, Soviet Union. And he said, uh, so he wasn't allowed to read a Bible, he wasn't allowed to believe in God. Atheism was what was pushed. And so, but he looked at the human body and he said, this couldn't have just happened. And so he went to try to find a Bible to try to get some insight. But he couldn't find a Bible. The libraries didn't have Bibles. But the libraries had, had people that wrote against the Bible. And in writing against the Bible, they quoted the Bible. And in reading those quotes... He was more convinced of the truth of the scripture than those who spoke against it, and he ended up placing his faith in Jesus Christ. Igor was uh, riding down the road one day. His name is Igor. Riding down the road one day after he had trusted Christ, riding down the road one day with a friend of his. And they were, you know, Russia, it snows 13 months out of the year. And they were looking out across this field, just this huge field of snow with a snowman way out there. And his friend said, stop, stop. And he stopped the car. And, and, and Igor said, how did that get there? And his friend said, somebody built it. <laughs> exactly right. There's no way that snowman could be sitting out there in the field by itself. Somebody had to build it. God has clearly revealed himself through what has been made that there is a creator. And the heathen in Africa can see that. And if the heathen in Africa responds somehow positively to the creation or the revelation that God has given them, God will give him more. We see this throughout Scripture. The Ethiopian eunuch had a faith as far as he could. But when he got to a stopping point where he, did, he realized, I can't go any further, what happened? God sent him someone to give him further insight. Cornelius, the Roman was a God-fearing person and yet couldn't go any farther until, until Peter came and shared the gospel with him. We see in the scriptures that if there is somebody that responds to the revelation they're given, be it a lot or be it a little, God will take them the next step and ultimately give them the gospel. God will make it happen. So the heathen has just as much chance of hearing the gospel if they'll respond as you and me growing up in the Bible Belt of the United States of America. There are just as many heathens here in America who, who need the grace of God. Maybe not just as many, but I mean the odds are just as great. So 
Well, some, well, well, the person who's never heard the gospel, indeed they will, just like the person in America who has never heard the gospel or never even responded to what they've heard. So let me get into the children thing real quick, and I know that we're a minute over, but you'll all forgive me. What about, what about children? Children can't believe, right? I mean, a baby, a baby. The millions who have died in the womb, what's their destiny? What about the, the toddler? Oh, I was reading just this week, maybe you saw it as well, about this, this poor mother who fought off their dogs that killed these little toddlers who had no knowledge of good and evil. It's horrible. What about their salvation? The age of accountability, that's an expression I grew up with as a Baptist, but you're not going to find it in the Bible anywhere. But the principle is definitely there. Genesis 2.17, we won't turn there, but just realize it's where God says, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Innocence is defined based on that. Do you have a knowledge of good and evil? Deuteronomy 139 talks of those who have no knowledge of good or evil, they are the ones that are going to enter the land. In Romans chapter 5, Paul tells us that the curse fell on everybody under Adam and that the, that the, the, the forgiveness, that the righteousness that Jesus died for, same Romans 5, also applies, not universally just given as a gift, but is adequate to, to uh, pay for the sins of everyone under Adam. So what do we do? We have to fall on the character of God. And without a more eloquent way to say it, the grace of God that, that, that uh, comes upon those of us who believe, or I should say who can believe, is applied to those who can't believe. Now that's different than the heathen in Africa. The heathen in Africa can believe if he has an opportunity. In fact, he sees the everything around him and, and refuses it. But some can't believe. I mean, cannot believe. Children cannot believe. They don't have the mental capacity yet to believe. Some are uh, mentally challenged. Even full-grown adults are mentally challenged to the point where they cannot believe. Again, when Jesus, uh, when Abraham talked with, with God over Sodom, he said, will not the judge of all the earth do rightly? We have to fall on the character of God when it comes to infants or those who are mentally challenged. And the character of God would suggest that the righteousness of Christ for those who cannot believe, I'm trying to emphasize that, those who can't believe, is applied to them and they are saved. Listen to um, an epitaph from St. Andrew's Churchyard in Scotland. This is written on a tombstone. Bold infidelity, turn pale and die. Beneath this stone, four sleeping infants lie. Say, are they lost or saved? If death's by sin, they sinned, for here they are. If heaven's by works, in heaven they can't appear. Reason, ah, how depraved. Turn to the Bible's sacred page, and the knot is untied. They died, for Adam sinned. They live for Jesus died. Brilliant theology 
from a tombstone, and I believe it's accurate. Um, if you want other verses on it, you can see in 2 Samuel 12, David expects fellowship with his son who died. He says, I cannot go to him. He will not come to me, but I will go to him. It's not just an anticipation of death, but an expectation of fellowship. Also, Jesus said in Matthew 18, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven for one of these little ones to perish. So again, ultimately, we fall on the character of God. If you want to read more about this, uh, Robert Leitner, one of my old profs at seminary, wrote a book, Robert Leitner, called Heaven for Those Who Can't Believe. So I'll hang around a little after class if you've got some follow-ups to any of these. But uh, we are past time, and I want to be respectful of our time. So let's pray together. Father, thank you that your word does address many of the things that we scratch our heads about. doesn't tell us everything we want to know, but it tells us all we need to know. And thank you for giving good answers, that your word, your word gives us good answers to many of the questions and certainly the essential things of life that we have questions about. But even then, even when we have answers, it boils down to faith. Are we going to believe it? Or are we going to reject it and lean on our own understanding? Lord, we pray for any who are here today that by their own works, their own good life, they are hoping to earn salvation, that you would show them that they must be perfect as their Heavenly Father is perfect, and therefore they don't meet the standard. They violate their own conscience and therefore would be justly condemned, just like all of us. But Jesus, your precious Son, died on the cross to pay for our sins, and all we must do is believe, just believe it, and that simple act of faith removes our sins from us, and we are declared righteous in your sight. Thank you for this wonderful promise and our expectation, not just of our justification or our ongoing sanctification, but that wonderful day of glorification where we will be in your presence without sin forever and forever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Wayne. Don't throw those notes away. We're probably going to ask the same questions next time. <laughs> but we, we just like to hear the answer, don't we? We just like that reassurance. Thank you. Until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. <laughs>